Well, good morning and happy Advent. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. I think that's officially how the calendar works. Today is that day, and Advent is uh, one of those parts of the church calendar that we tend to follow and observe and pay attention to. It's a good uh, season for us to anticipate the coming of Jesus. That's what Advent means, of course, and so that's what, what we do during the month of December, during the four, technically it's the four Sundays prior to Christmas is how I understand it to be, and so that's what this, this would be the fourth one out. And so we start today, and as we sang earlier, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, that's one of my favorite Christmas hymns. I always enjoy that, that song and its anticipation, looking forward to, to that coming. And as I wrote in the, the church newsletter, which should have arrived in your mailbox, your snail mailbox, yesterday, hopefully, um, we, we, we have long expected Jesus, and yet it's the unexpected parts of him that throw us for a loop oftentimes. If God's people had been more attentive to what God's prophets had said about him centuries before the first advent, then they might have been ready more so to receive him, to see him. But we can't give them too hard a time for that because we also have a hard time seeing him in many ways. There's so much about God and his good news that's unexpected even still today. And the minor prophets are going to help us with that. The minor prophets are going to help us during this month of December to see what are those unexpected elements of Jesus, the unexpected parts of the Messiah, the one that we anticipate coming that we need to be ready for. And each one of these minor prophets has a story. Dr. James Boyce was the pastor for many years of first, a uh, 10th Presbyterian church in Philadelphia. And in a, a commentary, a collection of his sermons that he wrote and compiled on the minor prophets, when he came to Hosea chapter 3, he actually calls it the greatest chapter in the Bible, which is fascinating. We're going to read it here in just a moment, and I'm not sure. Maybe you'll see why. I'll leave that to you to figure out why that, why that is. Hosea chapter 3. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand. We pray that you would help us to see the beauty of this Hosea's story this morning as we consider and anticipate the coming of Jesus during Christmas, during Advent season. Help us, Lord, to believe. Help us to see the beauty of your good news and to trust you for it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Just a few weeks ago, some of my family went together to see a new movie that's out. Maybe you've seen it. Murder on the Orient Express. 
a good classic Agatha Christie story. And so a plot is afoot in the 1930s on this luxury passenger train as it makes its way from Asia to France, I think was its destination. And providentially, if you're on the side of justice, Detective Hercule Poirot, I think that's how he pronounced his name, Detective Hercule Poirot stepped aboard the train in Asia. He, along with his amazingly impressive double mustache, stepped onto the train there, and as they traveled through the mountains, a murder takes place on the train, of course, and the clues begin to line up as the story unfolds, and everything makes sense, just as we would expect from a classic whodunit story. It's just a matter of observing the clues. You just have to pay attention to the clues. It's just a, just a matter of logic, really. I mean, premise A plus premise B leads inevitably to conclusion C. But in the end, what you get is completely unexpected. And that's, of course, what makes the story, that's what makes the story so great is the unexpected ending. And so it is in so many ways with Jesus. With the coming of the Messiah, as the minor prophets and the other prophets also had foreshadowed for us, there's an unexpected nature to the coming of this Messiah. We expect him to make sense. We expect to walk through the season of Advent anticipating Christmas with things making sense. But in the end, the one who comes is much better than just sense. He's much, much better than just logic. Advent is, is definitely a season of expectation, and it should be that. But are we expecting the right things? Do we expect the right things as we walk our way through Advent every year, year in and year out? God's redemptive plan is much bigger than our somewhat logical minds can possibly ever make sense of in any given year. For ages, God's people had expected a Redeemer. He had saved his people from famine by carving out a place for them in Egypt, way back in the Old Testament. And he had saved his people from slavery by leading them out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And he had saved his people from themselves by introducing them to the promised land. And for centuries there in that land, they struggled. They struggled to follow the kings that God provided for them. They struggled to worship behind the faithful priests that led in the temple. They, they struggled, therefore, to hear God's words coming to them through God's prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, even Elijah and Elisha before those, those would be what some might call the major prophets, I guess you could say. They're, they just have more words to them. But there are the minor prophets as well. They're minor, not because of a lack of of importance. They're minor because they're just shorter in the Bible. And so they kind of get tucked there at the back end of the Old Testament. And that's where they fit chronologically as well. That's that's where we, we find them. But they also have their own stories to tell. They're stories of what we should expect from God and what we should expect about God. Expectations that often for us get lost as we shape our own expectations according to our experience and according to our own assumptions about life as we see it. And Hosea has, among 
a number of messages for us this one. Beware what you expect from the heart of God. Beware what you expect from the heart of God. If you can't adjust to the unexpected, then you may just miss him. Hosea is is thought by many to be, you know, maybe an unseemly sort of story for uh, a dignified holiday season. Maybe it's unfit to talk about Hosea and his troubles during Christmas. Maybe it seems that way to us, but the reality is, I think, that, it, that nowhere in Scripture is there a more tender, a more sensitive, a more persuasive picture of the heart of God, a heart that is broken. Verse 1, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. It's not a topic we want to talk about during Advent season, certainly. But the again that Hosea gives us here is just a reference to chapter 1. In the first chapter, the very beginning of his prophecy, this is what we read. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. This is Hosea's infamous mission. Hosea, the poor prophet. There were a number of prophets that had hard jobs to do. They all had a hard job. Some of them were just more publicly difficult than others. And Hosea is certainly one of those. This is horrible advice that God gives to Hosea. I mean, let's just say it. Parents, you would never even imagine giving such advice to your son or to your daughter. If you had the ability to divine the future of the young woman or the young man that your son or your daughter was interested in, and you could see off into the future the unfaithfulness of that one towards your own son or your own daughter, you would never say to them, go and marry yourself to that one. They're going to be unfaithful to you. You would never do that, wouldn't you? You never would, and you should never do that. And yet God does that with Hosea here. It's remarkable, isn't it? It makes for an absolutely terrible Advent story. Unless your expectations are gospel-oriented. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. In about the middle 700s B.C., before Christ, and about 200 years after King Solomon's death. So if, if you know and remember of King Solomon's death in the Old Testament and what happened after that. The kingdom of Israel, the united kingdom up to that time, was divided because of bad leadership, because of those who followed after Solomon. They split the kingdom into two. And two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained together and formed a a kingdom, as it were, in the southern part of the land. And the other ten tribes bonded together and formed a kingdom, again, as it were, In the northern part of the land, that one was called Israel. That's referred to as Israel in the prophets, or sometimes Ephraim in Hosea's prophecy. And that northern kingdom of ten tribes always had trouble. It was always problematic. Throughout their 200 years, never one time did they ever, never did they at a single time have a king who was faithful to God. Every single one of their kings, without exception, every single one of their leaders 
was godless, was rebellious, would turn his back on God and set up worship according to his own desire. This is what those, those kings did in the northern kingdom, and it led eventually to chaos. And so God called Hosea to go and to be a prophet of action. Words, for sure. That's what prophets bring is words, but they sometimes do it by means of their action and their, their lives. Hosea was to demonstrate with his own life what God's experience with his people was like. And it, it seems absurd to us, doesn't it? I mean, it seems maybe overly dramatic that God would do such a thing, but I think it shows us something that we need to pay attention to, and that is that, that we ourselves will never really, really get the gospel until we can empathize, at least to some degree, with God himself. Until we can feel the weight of suffering to some degree that God himself felt. And Hosea takes that upon his shoulders as a prophet. This is what he does. God says to Hosea, as it were, put yourself in my shoes so that the people can see what my suffering, broken heart is like. Of course, the imagery of God as a bridegroom to his people is is rich and constant throughout Scripture. You see it often in the Bible. In Isaiah, that prophet tells us of, of God's words to his people, saying, Your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. And in Jeremiah, the prophet God says to his people, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. He's talking to them and reminding them of his leading them out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness, into the desert. And he says, as a bride, you followed me. So the picture of God as a bridegroom is constant in Scripture. It shows up so often. And Jesus assumes that role in the New Testament, you know. When the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus, maybe you remember the story, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like we do? And Jesus said to them, why would they fast? Why would they mourn when the bridegroom is with them? There will come a day when the bridegroom won't be with them and they will fast, but for now he's with them. In other words, I mean, if you think about it, that is one of the most profound statements Jesus could have made to these these thoughtful, faithful people. And surely they would have heard him say that and thought, wow, this guy is claiming to be God. Because that's what it was. It was a claim to deity. I am the bridegroom, he says. And if you would meet the coming Christ in Advent with clear expectations, then you must know that his heart is broken. Gomer is the one that Hosea is pointed to here. And we don't know much about Gomer at this point. We don't know if she was already an unfaithful woman committed to and even addicted to illicit love. We don't know that about her. Maybe she seemed decent in most respects. And God pointed her out and said to Hosea, Look, Hosea, Gomer's a beautiful woman. Go and love her. She'll marry you, but she's going to be unfaithful to you. But do it anyway and love her well. And so they got married, and and three children Gomer gave birth to. And she started her unfaithful ways very quickly. And chapter 2 of of Hosea's prophecy is a poem. It's kind of a long poem in which God grieves his broken heart. He's actually angry at the fact that Israel, his bride-to-be, has turned away from them. and, And 
he's told Hosea, love Gomer as I love Israel, though they turn their, to other gods and, and they love the raisin cakes. That seems like an odd little detail there, quirky sort of thing. The raisin cakes were one of the delicacies that were offered in the idol feasts that they would engage in. So the fact that they love the raisin nothing. I love raisins too. It's not against the raisins. It's, a, it's against the fact that they would engage in these idolatrous services and turn away from God himself. And God is angry about it. And he actually considers divorce. In chapter 2, throughout this poem, he considers divorce. He actually says, you are not my wife, and I am not your husband. And that's exactly what we would expect, isn't it? That's what we would expect from, from, from God, from a husband responding to an unfaithful wife. That's what we would expect. In fact, the names of the children that are born to Gomer are very telling. They're, they're names that communicate much to us. In chapter 1, we, we read that, that the Lord uh, called Hosea and said to him, Call this firstborn Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and put an end to the kingdom of Israel. It's a reference to there's a valley in the northern part of Israel. The, the mountains continue from Jerusalem going north, stretching along the Mediterranean Sea and between there and the Jordan River. And then they drop down to this lush green valley, which is called the Jezreel Valley, even to this day. And that's what he's referring to. And there was a, a historical incident in which the, the, the people, Jehu, as he's referring to, the house of Jehu and the massacre of Jezreel, there was a massacre that occurred there that was unjust and yet it was a judgment of God, and God's, God's referring to it and calling it, call the son Jezreel, because he's going to, to predict my, my judgment against the house of Jehu. But this word Jezreel also means scattered. I'm going to scatter them. And then the second one, the second child is born. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, call her name not loved because I no longer love Israel. I will no longer show love to Israel. We would expect that, wouldn't we? And then the the third one is born, another son. After she had weaned, not loved, Gomer had another son. And the Lord said, call his name, not mine. And maybe this one didn't even belong to Hosea. Maybe, maybe Gomer had conceived by way of another man at this point. We don't know. But the name is literally not mine, not my people. This one doesn't belong to me. And, and this is really what we would expect, isn't it? But it's not where God will conclude this story. Advent is, is really a good season for us. As somber as it may seem, to reflect on the ways in which we are, as we've sung, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I mean, there is no other God, so-called, that would ever endure a broken heart for you. In chapter 2, in that poem, God says about Israel, His people, He says, she will chase after her lovers, but she won't catch them. She will Look for them, but she won't find them. And that's a reflection of what we often do ourselves, isn't it? You know, your, your wealth, your money is completely impartial to you. That's an easy so-called God for us to place at a place of importance in our lives. 
but it's completely impartial to you. It doesn't care about you. It's just up and down with your investments if you have them or up and down with your employment status if that's a problem. Your wealth, it doesn't care about you. Or the regard and respect you have from other people, the way other people think of you often, that's a God that we love to rely on. But that's just fleeting, isn't it? It depends on what you've done for me lately, right? That's all that's there. And even this one, you think about this. In, in, in our culture here in Dallas, this is a huge so-called God. <clears throat> your kids, parents, your kids' academic or sports success. That's a big one for us, isn't it? We want those things for our kids for the next generation, and we want, it, we want them to succeed, but we want them to make us look good too. And so you know, we, we desire those things, and yet those things are completely fickle. They depend on how well your kid's performing. And that's a, that's a rabbit hole. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a terrible place to go. There's no other God that will ever endure a broken heart for you. And that's why the hymn writer could acknowledge this debt to grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace, now like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Because only grace will do that. And God's God's broken heart is a picture of that grace. But he doesn't stay in the weakness of that brokenness for long because his heart is also generous. Hosea shows us this. Verse 2, he says, So I bought her. So I bought her. Hosea has, has gone to buy his wife back because Gomer is not just loved by another. At this point, evidently she's owned by another. We don't know exactly the course of, 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 of Gomer's travels here, but it was an unseemly path to travel on, obviously. And she's become a slave. <clears throat> she's become a slave to the, to the men who supposedly loved her, but never loved her at all. They only used her. And now her usefulness has expired. And she's on the auction block. She's, she's to be bid off. And you can imagine how degrading that is. Here's this, this woman who was young and attractive and appealing to these men, and now they're just going to auction her off and get some money for her, and Hosea goes to the bidding. And you can imagine the scene. The, a slave like this would have surely been stripped down naked to stand on the auction block because the bidders needed to see exactly what they were getting. They didn't want the slave covered up. And so here she is standing naked before the eyes of all this crowd. And they're bidding, they're putting a price on her head. And the bidders begin to call out, you know, what is she worth? We had a friend in college who became a nurse. And she went and served in another country overseas for a time in a missionary sort of context. And she met a number of different people there. She's a tall and attractive woman. And some of the men there joked with her and teased her and said, you'd be worth 15 cows. Can you imagine that being said to you, ladies? You know, what are you, how much are you worth? I mean, dads, can you imagine putting a, a, such a price on your daughter's head for her marriage? Can you imagine doing that? I mean, if, 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 he, if the guy came to you and said, how much is she worth? You'd say, more than you got, Right? There's no price. There is no price. Not even an American Express card could buy this one, 
right? And yet, this is what's happening for Gomer. A price is being put on her head, and she hears the unfamiliar voices calling out. She's probably got her eyes closed in shame. And she hears the the voices calling out, I'll pay 10 shekels for her. I'll pay 12. 14 shekels I'll pay. 15. And then she hears a familiar voice, Hosea, who calls out, I've got 15 shekels and some bushels of barley sold to Hosea. And he buys her. He buys her back. He, he, He gave of his possessions. And he gave of his emotions, too. You have to recognize that that that's what's happening with the generous heart of Hosea reflecting God's heart. Both of these things reflect the generous heart of God. Hosea paid a price. He gave up his possessions. He gave up shekels and grain to gain her back. It's not a fortune. It's kind of the typical price of a slave at the time, probably. But Hosea gave not only of his possessions, he gave of his emotions as well. I mean, you can imagine, on one hand, his friends who saw him go and buy her back at this point. And his friends, you know, what would your friends say to you if you, if you were in Hosea's shoes doing this? They'd probably say, look, I mean, I mean, she's abandoned you over and over again, and she's left you with three children, and you're going to go and buy her, but you're going to spend your money on her? Come on. I mean, emotionally, Hosea is paying the price at the hands of his friends, surely, but not just that. He goes on and explains in verse 3. He says, Then I told her, he's bought her back, he's walking her home. He says, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will, be, I will behave the same way toward you. This is kind of a complex sentence here, and it's translated in various sorts of ways in different versions of Scripture. But Hosea is, is speaking to her and, and explaining to her, that we have some healing to do. I'm, I'm buying you back. I've paid a price of money, but the bigger price is my emotions. The bigger price is the healing that we have to do together. You're, you're not to be with any man. And I think what he means is not even with me for a time. And I'll be the same to you. We'll, we'll, we'll set aside from one another for a time because ultimately we need to heal. And then you will be mine and I will be yours. Now, technically, you have to realize Hosea owns her at this point. He could have, in that culture, done anything he wanted to do. He could have taken revenge. He could have put her to death. But he doesn't do that. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I want to live with you. I want to rebuild our life together. He went out on a limb. He took a huge risk with this woman who had been unfaithful. With a generous heart... He gave of his possessions and of his emotions. You know, relationships are difficult. Just in our own lives, relationships are always difficult. Because how many people are there in the world who have no needs? There are none. Every one of you, as I see your faces right now, and you looking right back at me, every one of us, we have these deep needs. And often we're not even aware of what they are. And Your friends will see them maybe before you do. Surely your husband and your wife will see those needs often before you do. And often they'll see them even in spite of the fact that you might deny that that you have those needs. Relationships are very difficult. To have a relationship with any person will cost you. It will probably cost you something of your possessions, but it will surely cost you your emotions. 
It will cost you by wearing the burden of what they bear for them. It, it always will do that. And your capacity to do that varies. You know, some of you are very sensitive and feeling people. And, and so you're eager, in the sense, to, to, to sit down with your friend and hear their burdens and share their burdens with them. Even though it weighs you down, you're eager to do it and you love to do it, even though it, it, it taxes your emotional, your, your emotional ability and well-being. Some of you are, are more thinking and strategic about the way that you go about life and, and even relationships, and so maybe you're a little more hesitant to step into the life of someone else and bear their burden, even if they're angry at you and, and you're wearing the emotion that they're bringing to you. And sometimes you know, some people are, are less hesitant to do that, and you want to just preserve your own emotional capital. But the gospel says you can't hide behind that always. Ultimately, eventually, you have to empathize with God's broken and generous hearts and take on some of the burden of those around you. Hosea is a picture of God. Hosea is in love with Gomer. God is in love with his people. Hosea paid a price of his possessions and his emotions. What did God do? Well, we know that story, don't we? I mean, Hosea in some way explains that worldwide well-known verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you ever wonder what does that mean that God so loved? Well, Hosea explains it for you, doesn't he? This is the way in which God so loved. This is how he did it. The, the world turned its back on God. It abandoned Him completely, including you and I. It gave itself to a host of empty affections. But the generous-hearted God came and gave. He gave, paying a great price, enduring great suffering, so that He could freely give Himself to her, to the world, and to you and to me. God's heart is broken, and it's generous. But it's also big. God's heart is big. In verse 4 and following, Hosea interprets his actions for us a bit here. His prophetic ministry was not seeking only current relief from painful unfaithfulness, but it was also seeking future completion of a fulfilling redemption. So verse 4, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. God's heart is so big that Hosea gave himself to do on a personal scale what God would do on a cosmic scale, on a universal scale for all of his people. Hosea and and Gomer would, as I said, spend some time healing in abstinence with the expectation of a full renewal of their relationship. And so also the Israelites would live for many days, Hosea says here, without these things. In other words, they would be exiled to Babylon. It's something of what Hosea is predicting for his people, that they would be exiled for Babylon. They wouldn't have a, a king. They wouldn't they wouldn't have 
prince and sacrifice and sacred stones. They wouldn't have these things for, for a time. They'd be exiled. And after, after decades of that, they would return. But nothing would be as it was before until David, their king, would come. It's an expectation of a full renewal of relationship between God's people and God himself. Hosea with his wife and God with his people. Chapter 1 had given the the hint to us. There's a reversal of the children's names at the end of chapter 1. It's interesting. Listen to this. Hosea writes, this is the end of chapter 1. After after he's named the children Jezreel and not loved and not my people, then he says this, Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader, their King David, and they will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. It's a total reversal of the children's names. It's it's, it's a reversal of what we would have expected. The, The names all change. Not my people becomes my children. Not loved, obviously, becomes loved. And Jezreel, scattered, it now becomes something different because it, it means something also. There's a sort of a double sense of the meaning here because when a farmer scatters, he's also sowing. He's also planting. When a farmer scatters the seed, as God would scatter his people, he's also planting something to grow. And so we're given the hint that there's something to, to look forward to. The, the poem of chapter 2 ends this way. It says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not loved. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are our God. Now, think back to that New Testament reading we heard earlier this morning. Simon the Pharisee. He invited Jesus over to his house house for dinner. And who knows what Simon expected of Jesus. But what he got certainly was not that. And here this woman comes and and begins to to anoint Jesus' feet with oil. And she's a sinful woman, we're told. She's a woman much like Gomer, no doubt. And Jesus receives all that she has to bring to bless him with, and Simon can't believe it. He doesn't speak it out. He doesn't call Jesus out in judgment, but he knows in his heart, and Jesus sees what he's thinking, and Jesus asks him the question, what do you think? Which one of these will love the one more who forgave them their debts? In other words, Simon, if you had paid any attention, if you knew the scriptures that you've had in your hands all your life, you would not be surprised at my heart for this woman. Simon, did you not know the heart of God? Simon, what were you expecting of me? This is what you should have expected. From chapter 4 in Hosea to the very end of his, his short little prophecy, he meanders on through some poetry, reflecting on this broken relationship that God wants to restore. And at the very end of it, the big heart of God becomes very clear. Listen to this. This is chapter 14 in part of Hosea. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously. 
Assyria cannot save us. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. Hosea is saying to Israel, take those words back to God and God will respond. And here's his response. I will heal your waywardness and love you freely. For my anger has turned away from you. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. I am like an evergreen cypress, God says. Your fruitfulness comes from me. It's amazing, isn't it? God's big-hearted love for his people. Hosea, as odd as the story may be, is a profoundly Advent-oriented prophecy. Expecting the coming of a Messiah whose heart would be broken and would be generous and would be big for his people. Hosea ends his, his whole prophetic book with, with a little proverb at the end. It's just a little snippet of wisdom that's beautiful for us to see. The last verse of Hosea reads like this. It says, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. All these things that I've just explained to you of Hosea's troubled relationship with his wife, his unfaithful wife, and God with his people. Understand these things, you who are wise. Whoever is discerning, let him know these things. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them. But the rebellious stumble in them. Don't stumble over what you did not expect. See the heart of your God this Advent season and rejoice in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to see these things as this bit of wisdom calls us to do and that you would enable us, Lord, to see how we are to return to you, to, to turn to you with the words of, of pleading, expecting the forgiveness of a gracious Savior, uh, a God whose heart is broken and yet generous and big towards his people. Father, help us to see these things and to rejoice in them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.